I'm John DiLiberto and you're hearing the Echoes podcast from PRX. Today I've got two generations of electronic musicians, a grandparent to grandchild kind of split. We're going to hear from the 17th icon of Echoes, Jean-Michel Jarre. We've got a 30-minute documentary with this legendary musician drawing across 35 years and about six interviews. Jarre is more than just oxygen. We'll also hear from a new electronic pop group out of Philadelphia called Decoupler. This couple has created an album of infectious synth-pop born of pandemic isolation. Before we get to that, let me tell you about Echoes Online, our streaming subscription music service. You can get all 10 hours of Echoes programs we produce each week, a backlog of some three months plus exclusive online-only Echoes streams. And those streams also include regular Echoes programs, but without me announcing. And you can do it all on your free Echoes app. If the public stations in your area are clueless or you want to find a more convenient listening time like whenever you want, find out about Echoes Online at echoes.org. Jean-Michel Jarre is coming up, but first, here's Decoupler. If you make music, there are two ways you might approach the subject of the pandemic. One is to create a sound that is soothing and organic, maybe even purely acoustic. A wistful sound to make the world seem gentler and more embracing. Another way, however, is to sit in your bedroom, turn on your computer, and make music that attacks the pandemic's isolation and loneliness head on. That's the approach of the Philadelphia duo Decoupler on their debut album, Digital Bonfire. Coupler is singer Bailey Walker and electronic musician Adam Laub. They spent 2020 pretty much stuck in their West Philadelphia apartment contemplating isolation. It was just relevant to the moment, and it's just lyrically what was coming out, you know. (laughs) Um, It also felt like people were kind of grappling with this new change. So just to kind of like interpret that for other people, we thought that was a good opportunity. Yeah, especially the uh, digital communication end of things. It's a challenge for a lot of people and a lot of people had to learn new ways to talk and that's definitely a running theme throughout the record is finding new ways to communicate with people that you could have seen in person before all of this.
Bailey Walker and Adam Laub have been together for a couple of years. Speaking to me on Zoom, they are in an apartment bedroom slash studio. While their mostly black and white press photos make them look pretty sullen and bleak, they actually seem a lot happier on our Zoom call and in color. Behind them are art prints and posters of psychedelic monsters done in cartoon style. Uh, the stuff up there is from uh, a comic festival. That's Dave Proch's art. He uh, He's a local Philly artist. And that one is a PBR art that was done for a PBR promo campaign. I actually found that one in the trash and <laughs> brought it into my house because I thought it looked cool. It's our sacred <laughs> trash uh, portrait. This one's actually also by Dave Proch. I met him at a comic convention in Philly, and I just loved his art, and he was selling it all for very reasonable prices. And I was like, I'm buying all this, and I'm just going to decorate half my room with your stuff. It's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Just turning 30, Adam Laub has been in music for over a decade and is part of the Sleepless Sound recording studio in Philadelphia. He's a child of post-rock. Back then, it was all Trent Reznor all day. I was listening to Nine Inch Nails on loop a lot of post-rock explosions in the sky mogwai uh godspeed you black emperor just all of that post-rock and industrial from the 90s was my mainstay when i was in high school he's released several albums of often avant-garde electronic music as radio addict Bailey Walker, who is only just in her early 30s, had a more conventional music background. Oh, when I was 15, a lot of talking heads. I was obsessed with the talking heads. <laughs> Let's see. I grew up with musician parents, so I was listening to a lot of blues, a lot of Nina Simone, Aretha Franklin, the big, the greats. And I think I was just all over the place, really, as a listener. And I think that's why it kind of reflects in some of the music, because I like to bring a lot of different influences in to try to see if I can find a middle ground. Prior to Decoupler, she'd released a couple of EPs that reveal more of a blues rock sound with powerhouse vocals. apparent that working together has brought out a different sound. I've got no fear in my mind. I'm like this all the time. I've got no fear in my mind. Girl, I'm like this. I'm like this. So Bailey Walker lived something of a nomadic life before coming to Philadelphia, and the pandemic has brought out her memories of that experience. I've spent a lot of time traveling around the country, living in different cities, and the general theme there is that I'm, you know, alone in a new city and I've got to figure out my way. So I think loneliness showed up a lot because it's just kind of something that I've experienced through traveling the country. It comes up a few times in her songs, especially Tourist Town. I was trying to capture that feeling of, um, you know, I was living in this city that had a huge art college and I lived there for a while and like saw people going through the cycle and then leaving. 
and it was just kind of like this culture and the just relationships kind of slipping through your hands you know in any tourist town anywhere it's the turnover in certain places it's pretty rapid honestly (laughs) so I think that that lyric kind of touched on a similar lonely theme uh, that you hear throughout the album Going back to those early albums by Gary Newman, Depeche Mode, and Ultravox, electronic pop is often about alienation and depression. That's the perfect mood for Decoupler's Digital Bonfire, and you can hear it in songs like Serotonin Fund, with a swirling synth line that seems to reflect psychosis. Yeah, I think it plays into, you know, a lot of people, especially nowadays, dealing with pandemic, dealing with all this stuff, depression is more and more common. Five years ago, ten years ago, it was more stigmatized, but I think younger generations are making it less stigmatized, and I hope we continue to move in that direction, because, you know, I've seen stats that say half or more of all people have undiagnosed depression or anxiety or other mental health issues, and for us, it was a lot about being able to just talk about these things and also represent them through the music like you're talking about, so yeah, serotonin fun definitely plays into that a lot. Yeah. Even songs recorded prior to the pandemic seem to address themes of depression, including their very first track together, Got It Covered. Oh yeah, (laughs) it is. And it's kind of the reaching out to someone who's afraid to reach out, you know? It's kind of like starting the conversation of like, if things aren't okay, here I am. It's not all depression on Digital Bonfire. There are some quietly reflective and even romantic moments like Osage, named for Osage Avenue, one of many tree-lined streets in their West Philadelphia neighborhood. Uh, Osage was just, you know, meeting someone and starting to spend more time with them. Would it be the same if I'd never met you? It's kind of like this, I'm trying to capture this twilighty moment of walking home from a get-together and seeing all the porch lights in West Philly and just feeling all my feelings. (laughs) Yeah, I really loved Osage and I thought, I hope that I captured like a visual moment there. 
SPO2 decoupler in mid-March. COVID vaccinations were becoming more widespread and it seemed like the pandemic may be lifting. But as I write this, a couple of weeks later, the CDC is warning about a fourth wave. So we may need decoupler's digital bonfire for a while longer. The first track on the album is Keepsake, so you may want to keep it around because depression and isolation are ever-present. I'll have a link for Decoupler's Digital Bonfire in the posting for this podcast. And while you're there, check out the Echo CD of the Month Club. Every month, we pick out our favorite disc and we send it to club members. Our current pick is Carl Weingarten's Ember Days. And next month is going to be London Grammar's Californian Soil. Read our reviews and check out the Echo CD of the Month Club at echoes.org. And now, get ready to launch as we hear the 17th of 30 icons of Echoes, Jean-Michel Jarre. The big trap at the beginning of the, of the synthesizer was the fact that a lot of people was thinking that finding sounds and colors was music. And they were actually just modern craftsmen at that stage. They had to finish the way with the sounds they have found to really make music. So I think it's really two steps actually, to find your own sounds that gives actually your own uh, color, your own style, and then doing the music. That's Jean-Michel Jarre, and he has been finding his colors for nearly 50 years. His 1976 album, Oxygen, is considered an electronic music classic, and he's remained an explorer of sound and space for decades. He's a 17th icon of Echoes. For many, Jean-Michel Jarre was their first exposure to electronic music. His album Oxygen, released in Europe in December of 1976 and worldwide in 1977, became an international hit, reaching number one in France, number two in England, and the top 100 in America. Oxygen was actually played on FM radio in 1977. Electronic artist Chuck Van Zyl remembers it as part of his indoctrination. Back then the synthesizer was new, so it was kind of this magical futuristic instrument, really. And so I just wondered, like, uh, well, I wonder if any music exists, like, just like, you know, that's just made with a synthesizer. 
And I wasn't able to find uh, I wasn't able to find anything like that until I guess I heard those Kraftwerk pieces and Vangelis and Jar on on commercial radio. You know, and I can't deny being influenced by those Oxygen and Equinox by Jar. German electronic musician Christoph Sebastian Pabst. Um, my first um, contact with electronic music, I think it was um, Jean-Michel Jean. I, I loved this music, absolutely. It's uh, also a kind of ambient and uh, spherical sounds, and yeah, this was um, idle for me. Though it was released after landmark electronic and space music works by Tangerine Dream, Klaus Schulze, Vangelis, and Kraftwerk, Jean-Michel Jarre's Oxygen still seemed like the music of the future in 1977. Electronic artist Moby, who collaborated with Jarre, was in awe when he first heard the French musician as a teenager. When I was growing up, I assumed that all of these records, Tangerine Dream, Kraftwerk, you know, Jean-Michel Jarre, were made in massive studios with super complicated equipment I couldn't potentially understand. And he said that he made oxygen in his kitchen with one synth and a drum machine. And I think an eight track tape recorder. And I was like, I just assumed he was in like this phenomenal studio with millions of dollars worth of equipment. It's like, nope, just a guy in his kitchen. Jarre himself claims he didn't even have a sequencer at the time of Oxygen, even though Tangerine Dream had been using them since 1974. In the days of Oxygen, I had no choice because it was before MIDI and before sync techniques. So I had to, to do lots of sequences by hand, not by choice, but by necessity. And today, obviously, it's different. But obviously, what makes uh, the, the kind of sequences quite interesting in Oxygen, like in tubular beds or like in Philip Glass' work when he's uh, doing some sequences with uh, string orchestra, is the fact that when you are doing sequences by hand, it's like a heartbeat. A heartbeat is regular, but never uh, each heartbeat is different. There is something about the sonic palette that Jarre created that makes oxygen sound timeless. I always convinced that what's dating uh, recording is the sound of the drums and the sum of the bass. And what makes, uh, I think, oxygen quite timeless is because the, the, the percussions and the bass lines are not up to your face. I mean, the groove is coming from the melodies and sequences.
Jean-Michel Jarre didn't begin as a plugged-in child. Born in 1948, his father is the famed film composer Maurice Jarre, whose scores included Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Shivago, and Ghost. While many think of Jean-Michel Jarre's music as cinematic, he says he's not a chip of the old soundtrack. Actually, I grew up very far away from his influence because my parents split when uh, I was uh, five years old. So I really grew up far away from his influence. It was his mother, Francette Peugeot, a member of the French Resistance and a concentration camp survivor, who gave him his initial musical influences. One of her best friends was uh, the owner of a very famous jazz club uh, after the Second World War called uh, Le Chat qui Pêche, the Fishing Cat. And uh, it was the most popular club for modern jazz. I used to go there a lot with my mother when I was a kid, during weekends, for instance, and I saw there people like John Coltrane, uh, and Archie Chep, and Don Cherry, and Chet Baker, uh, when I was even uh, seven or eight or nine years old. And I remember that for my nine years old, ten years old birthday, a few of these guys like Don Cherry and uh, Chet Baker just put me on, on the piano and they played for my birthday just for myself. I, re I will remember that for all my life. And so that gave me, as a very young kid even, a sort of a very wide range of the different sort of music. His interest in electronic music also originates in his youth. I've always been very interested in sounds, even when I was a kid, because my actually my grandfather was uh, one of the inventor of one of the first uh, mixing board for radio stations in in France, and uh, I grew up in the middle of all this stuff. So I'm sure that it's how it, uh, influ it influenced me. And when uh, I was even a young kid and starting to play in rock bands, and uh, I was very into trying to modify and to change regular sounds of instruments. So it, it started from that point. And uh, then when I went into the Groupe de Recherche Musicale, it's, it was uh, for me the first time that I could be in contact with real electronic instrument, not synthesizer yet. It was not exactly called like that at that time. It was much before the fashion of synthesizers. Among his teachers was the legendary French music concrete pioneer, Pierre Schaeffer. I remember when I studied with uh, Pierre Schaeffer, I mean, it was the first time that somebody was approaching music with a different concept by saying music is not made only of uh, notes and uh, harmonies, but music is made of sounds. And uh, this uh, simple thought changed the music since of the second half of the 20th century until now. I mean, all DJs are now sound designer in a sense. And everybody today is doing electronic music even when they are doing rock and roll or jazz or whatever because they are using electronic means and electronic technology. Jar's early albums like Oxygen, Equinox, and Magnetic Fields seem far removed from Schaeffer, but his influence would become more obvious on Jean-Michel Jarre's 1984 album, Zuluk. The idea behind Zuluk was 
this time not using the synthesizer for producing electronic sounds, but rather using the synthesizer, I would say, almost like a paparazzi with a camera. I mean, to uh, take human sounds and using the synthesizer to, to transform, to rearrange, to change, and yes, to transform the human sounds and human vocal sounds mainly. Zulik is a core work for electronic keyboards with voices and languages from 25 countries played on synthesizer and sampler. With Zulu particularly, I didn't want to make any ethnic statement. The idea was really to treat vocals like you treat acoustic instruments when you are in front of a symphonic orchestra. And the idea for Zulu was actually to treat and to take vocal sounds not for what they mean actually but for their uh, phonetic or musical characteristics and also I would say for their range Some of the languages were fabricated, including one sung by performance artist, Laurie Anderson. You might not imagine two more different musicians. We are different. We're really different, and that's what makes working with him so much fun. And, uh, and I remember also having some some reservations about working with him at that point. I was like, wow, we are, we are so different. How is that going to work? Because he really appreciates that difference. And in fact, it was kind of exhilarating because it was... Um, this is so different that we're just going to go for it. She came during the weekend to try to achieve one of my projects in Diva that was uh, try to create a song in which she could sing in a sort of alien language with uh, words you can't understand, but you can just feel the feeling of the emotion through the way she was expressing herself. So we actually chose some uh, Japanese roots because she was coming from Japan and we, we twisted all that with uh, uh, weird English words cut and all that just to have a, just a basis it was just like a sort of framework and then she improvised on that and uh, I asked her to sing a very high very high pitch and she was a bit astonished because they, she never sung like that there's an intentional irony in that he had Anderson sound like she was a sampled voice. One of the challenges we tried to have was to integrate uh, Laurie's voice, like if it was sort of sampling sounds, but done by herself. It's the reason why it was a bit difficult to do, because it was like for her to sing like if, if it was a keyboard that would produce the sound. like Zuluk and later his Electronica recordings and Amazonia were direct descendants of Pierre Schaffer as well as Pierre-Henri, John Cage and Karl-Heinz Stockhausen. But 
made for contemporary ears. At that time, the music concrete was a concept based on recording natural sounds and transforming them with scissors and, and tape loops and filtering reverse effects and all that. And now with the new technology, with the new um, digital synthesizers, you have the, the possibility to do that at once and to do that in a much uh, more sophisticated way. What did Chaffer, who died in 1995 at the age of 85, think of his pupil? He thinks a lot of my teaching. He's my most grateful student, and I'm very happy for his success, because people need some successful commercial music. His music is not particularly good, but success is a good thing. Whatever Schaffer thought, it was a sound that would go on to influence hip-hop, EDM, and pop music, and, although he might not admit it, Steve Reich. His compositions, like different trains, come directly from Musique Concrète through Jarre's digital sample. Electronic acts definitely acknowledge the debt, including the British duo Orbital. Jean-Michel Jarre with yeah. his Zoo Look album. That was, that was absolutely brilliant with those other sort of fast samples. Mantronics. Yeah. Andy Dobson of Digitonal. Jean-Michel Jarre's Zoo Look album was a huge influence on me as a kid in terms of them wanting to buy a load of synthesizers and, uh, and have a choir and an orchestra and opera singers, you know, and, and stand up in a big, massive stage. I really loved that, and that's where a lot of that love came from. Jean-Michel Jarre would release several albums throughout the 1980s and 90s and create some spectacular performances like his Rendezvous Houston in 1986. There, he projected images and lasers across Houston's skyline. It was a piece that also featured his laser harp. That was quite an interesting uh, instrument invented, created by a French guy. And uh, it's actually a, a, an instrument you can play with your hands, with light, and uh, it's linked to various synthesizers and filters, and you can uh, play with that almost like a ha real harp or like a string instrument, except the strings are, are made of light. Jarre was not overly prolific, but he released several more recordings throughout the 90s and into the 2000s. In 2015, he put out a pair of recordings that sought to place his music in a broader electronic context. 
Electronica 1 and Electronica 2 featured a different collaboration on every track that included pioneers like Tangerine Dream and Laurie Anderson, as well as electronic pop artists Air, Gary Newman, and M83. He got singer Cindy Lauper and The Who's Pete Townsend. And of course, there was techno with EDM acts like Armin Van Buren and F Buttons. With these albums, Jarre established himself as a link from early electronic pioneers to contemporary artists, many of whom have no idea about the roots of the music they make. I hope that this project also could open the door to um, the electronic music heritage. I mean, some people are thinking sometimes that uh, electronic music started with Avicii. When he teamed up with a French electronic pop band called Air, a concept of a trip to electronic history, taken to an extreme. During the track we are doing, we've done together, using almost as a dogma, different generations of electronic instruments since the 50s to today. The beginning should use only oscillators and the first uh, electronic instruments from the Schaeffer, Pierre Schaeffer time and Stockhausen time. So I went to Berlin and I used one of the very early synthesizers ever made in France by the Pierre Schaeffer team in the probably late 40s, early 50s, called the Coupigny. Timeless music is timeless music. I mean, you take the, the track I've done with Tangerine Dream, I mean, we started more or less at the same time in the, in the late 60s, of a track from F Buttons. It's very difficult to know which is which one. The, the track from F Buttons could have been done 30 years ago. The track from that I, done, I did with uh, Tangerine Dream could have been done this year. In 1997, Jarre extended his original Oxygen with Oxygen Parts 7 through 13, and in 2016, he returned again on the 40th anniversary of his signature work with Oxygen 3. With Oxygen 3, the series seems to have reached an endpoint. Oxygen Part 20, the final track, feels like a definitive conclusion. Jarre says he was inspired by the late science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke's reaction to the original Oxygen. For him, Oxygen was like a journey into space. I'm not agreeing necessarily with this, but it was his vision. Jarre embraced Clarke's space travel imagery and imagined peace as the spaceships return home through the atmosphere. And what's going on when you go into any kind of atmosphere? I mean, you have this kind of uh, burning and extreme heat uh, process when you go, you go in, inside the atmosphere. And then I, I kept that in uh, 
back of my mind where suddenly you have this kind of scream sound which is not scary but just intense like with the heat when it becomes white when it's so hot and you know as we know when something is burning it could be the end of it of the renaissance of something else so I don't know maybe we'll see if I'm doing a season four of oxygen it's, it's not it's not a, a, a plan for tomorrow morning anyway Jean-Michel Jarre's father, Maurice Jarre, may not have influenced his music, but when I spoke to Jarre in 1985, the first of six interviews across 35 years, he said his father finally acknowledged his son's work. What's happening is very funny because uh, he never commented a lot the music I was doing, and when um, the China concert has been released and particularly Zuluk, and he listened to that before it was finished. He called me one night and he said very nice things about it and, and he was very impressed by that. And since he seems to be uh, more and more involved in, uh, in synthesizers and he's, uh, he's asking me uh, what, what I think of such or such instrument and all that. And so that's very almost surrealistic uh, and very unusual relationship we have because uh, it's uh, a sort of reverse situation. of Jean-Michel Jarre may appear like the sound of the future, but Jarre says he's just using new tools to express timeless emotions. Nothing changes. I think uh, the technology is changing, the tools you are using are changing, but I think uh, what strikes me the, the most uh, in terms of music, like any form of art, is the fact that I think there is human, I would say, continuity in terms of uh, emotions or feelings. I mean, I think a Chinese man uh, 3,000 or 5,000 uh, years ago was uh, trying uh, to express more or less that we are trying to express or what we'll try to express in a few centuries. I mean, notion of solitude or love or hate or, or joy or, or sadness. I think there is sort of a, a range of feelings that human people have and they are trying to express them through different societies, through the time, with different tools in different contexts, but the real feelings stay more or less the same. In, in other words, I, I think less and less that you can talk about notion of progress in terms of feelings, just in terms of technology and, and context of the, uh, of the society in which you are expressing yourself. Michel Jarre, 
tuning in the emotions of the 21st century electronically. He's the 17th icon of Echoes. Documentary on Jean-Michel Jarre, the 17th icon of Echoes, was produced, written, and edited by me, John DiLiberto, with assistance from Jeff Town, who also conducted some of the interviews. Echoes is partly funded by the Blatt Family Foundation and the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts. Additional funding comes from our PRX affiliate stations. You can see the complete list of the 30 icons of Echoes at echoes.org, and you can dig back in the podcast where we've done profiles like this on most of the first 17 icons. Next week on the Echoes podcast, the 18th icon guitarist Michael Hedges and an interview with the dream pop band London Grammar, who have a new album out. Subscribe now so you won't miss an episode of the Echoes podcast. I'm John DiLiberto. This has been the Echoes Podcast from PRX. See you next week, tonight, on the radio, somewhere in the country, or at Echoes Online, right now, or whenever you want. <laughs>